Okay, let me open the session. Uh, I'm John Mueller from Ohio State and from uh, Cato. And uh, I'd like to welcome you to this <laughs> session. I've got a note here that says, be sure to turn off cell phones and things like that. Um, as you're well aware, the, uh, 25 years ago, um, an article written by Francis Fukuyama in, a, in, a, in the journal National Interest uh, went uh, viral, as before the words went, went viral had become, uh, become known, uh, and crazy, created an enormous stir and controversy which still reverberates the, the present day. And uh, so we thought after this quarter century, it'd be a good time to sort of reflect back uh, on the article itself, uh, what it said, and how much it's held up over this period, what areas there might be uh, uh, revisions. Um, the uh, article basically um, did uh, a number of things, but one of the things it, it didn't do uh, was not necessarily the beginning of the end, uh, but it turns out it was the beginning of the ends. Uh, there's an article about a year ago in the Washington Post, uh, which said by uh, Carlos Lozada, uh, called "The End of Everything," and not only was the end of history proclaimed in 2009, I mean in 1989, but also the ends of nature, the end of nature. In 2004, it was the end of faith. In 2006, the end of poverty. In 2008, the end of reason and lawyers. In uh, in 2009, white America ended. In 2010, the free market ended. In 2011, the future ended. Um, and 2012 was pretty big uh, because it was in that year that we lost leadership, money, illness, and men, um, and also war. Uh, and uh, 2013, uh, there was the end of uh, courtship, power, and sex. So uh, if you're wandering around wondering why there isn't much around anymore, it's, you blame it. <laughs> Can blame it all on Fukuyama. Um, um, okay, the um, uh, uh, I've, uh, we've got uh, three panelists uh, uh, t uh, in this session and three more in the next, uh, examining this uh, this uh, issue over a period of time. Um, the uh, at the time that the I'd like to do a little bit of put you, put this a little bit in context. Uh, Fukuyama may have been the first to use the word "end" in a meaningful way, but there was one end at the time. It was very much in the air, and that was the end of the Cold War, except people didn't saw that. They said, is the Cold War over? Um, that uh, The uh, Fukuyama essay came out in the summer of 1989, uh, and a few months earlier, Margaret Thatcher had said, basically, the Cold War seems to be over. Uh, Gorbachev had given a speech at the United Nations on uh, December 7th, 1988, which seemed to indicate the end of the class struggle and so forth. And the very next day, uh, was Ronald Reagan as president his last uh, his last press conference, and I actually remember watching it and was quite astounded by one question. It came from Lou Cannon, who was later to write a biography of uh, of uh, Reagan, a reporter for the Washington Post, um, and he said, uh, "Do you think the United States and the Soviet Union could become allies again, as they had been, of course, during World War II?" Uh, you know, the sort of question that had not been brought up very frequently, I must say. Um, and uh, uh, Reagan's answer was pretty straightforward. He didn't say, yeah, we should invite him into NATO the day after tomorrow. Uh, but he said that really if they've given up the class struggle and so forth, they can join the family of nations and so forth. Uh, and uh, it was sort of a suggestion that something was there. Uh, in many respects, uh, um, the, uh, the, 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 war, the Cold War sort of came to that end and people were at that time, 
and people were discussing it over the next six months, uh, then maybe capped by the end of history essay that, come, that comes out the following summer. But in the spring, late, late, late winter and very early spring of uh, 1989, uh, the uh, New York Times ran a series of articles um, uh, called uh, is, is the Cold War Over? Uh, one of the essays was written by Michael Mandelbaum, one of our panelists uh, uh, in a few minutes. Um, and on, it, was on August, it was on April 2nd that the New York Times had an editorial saying the Cold War is over. Uh, and more people sort of went on that. The, New, the Wall Street Journal came out about a month later saying a memo, we won um, about that. Uh, the Washington Post under Don Oberdorfer also interviewed a bunch of people um, who basically seemed to think that was, that was happening. Um, and there was a, a general sort of move in that, in that direction at that time. Uh, and then um, the, uh, the, the uh, new H, George H.W. Bush administration uh, started coming out with uh, trying to figure out where we were politically internationally. Uh, and by May of 1989 had decided to use a phrase they didn't know what to call it. They actually called it, they were thinking about saying the Cold War is over, but they thought that was too terminal um, and there's a danger that, of course, could revive. So they, were good, they tried to adopt a policy called beyond containment, uh, which does seem to get sort of that, that sort of uh, idea out. And Bush made it very prominent in several foreign policy speeches in May. Uh, so a lot was there. And then, then uh, the Fukuyama thesis basically comes out. Uh, and in many respects, the Cold War began really to end, I think, with the Polish election of uh, June 4, 2014, which the president was just in Warsaw, basically to celebrate, uh, when the um, uh, Communist Party was essentially, even in a somewhat rigged election, uh, voted out of office. Uh, thing, and things really began to change and later on, of course, the fall of the wall uh, later in, the, uh, in, in November. So things are really happening, and it, it, the issue was, is it really over uh, And uh, when the Fukuyama uh, paper came out? There are a number of people who strongly disagree, such as Samuel Huntington, uh, wrote, in, wrote an article saying uh, in the national interest also, uh, later in, after Fukuyama's article appeared, saying that he was, um, that uh, he called, called it the uh, no exit, the errors of what he called endism. And he called endism the intellectual fad of 1989. <laughs> Uh, attacking a, a large number of people on that on that area. Um, okay, so that's sort of the background is, is where the Fukuyama essay is uh, uh, comes out um, with now using the sort of dramatic word end of history, uh, which, uh, as I pointed out, has not gone away. Uh, our program will be uh, basically there's two panels. Uh, one will be, um, be starting now, lasting till about 2:30, and then there'll be a brief break from 2:30 to 2:45. And then a second panel with three additional panelists, uh, and they're, um, on, uh, the, the biographies have already been passed out, uh, so I won't um, uh, belabor uh, those. Um, the uh, Fukuyama will, uh, 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 Frank Fukuyama will start the discussion. He's going to talk a little bit about the background to the essay and then also obviously what he thinks about it. He'll be publishing an article tomorrow in the Wall Street Journal uh, on reflecting back on the, on the 25 years of uh, history that has taken place since his essay came out. So if you listen very carefully, you won't have to buy the Wall Street Journal tomorrow. It'll <laughs> save you a lot of effort there. Um, the, uh, then we'll have uh, Adam Garfinkel, who has been at the National Interest, is now the editor at the American Interest, uh, and then uh, Michael Mandelbaum from, uh, from Johns Hopkins uh, uh, SICE uh, operation. After the brief, brief uh, uh, interlude, uh, which will be very quick, just 15 minutes, 
uh, we'll come back with three other commentators, uh, Marian Tupi, me, and uh, uh, Paul Pilar, uh, and then France, Frank, Frank Fukuyama uh, will be sort of the final discuss it, and we'll very much want to open it all up for questions and commentary and expressions of outrage or whatever. So uh, would you help me uh, welcome now Francis Fukuyama, 25 years later. <laughs> Uh, well, thanks very much, uh, John. I'm really uh, grateful to the Cato Institute for sponsoring this, uh, uh, this event and uh, to John personally for taking the interest and the time to uh, organize it. And it's great to be back in Washington. I've been in California nearly four years now, and it's uh, wonderful to see a lot of old friends and colleagues uh, uh, from different phases of my uh, earlier life here uh, in the room today. So uh, thanks very much. Uh, and by the way, are we going to have questions in this session, or are they all going to be reserved? time, I think, if that's yeah. okay. Okay, fine. Okay, good. All right, so John asked me to talk really on two subjects, to first say a little bit about the origins of the article, uh, and then to do the retrospective 25 years later. So let me do uh, each of those in turn. Um, so I'm, uh, and I've actually been asked this question at regular intervals in the last 25 years. Uh, so uh, I, uh, if any of you have heard any of this uh, previously, I apologize in advance. Uh, but let me just give you a little bit of the background, the intellectual background of how this all uh, came about. Uh, I was an undergraduate at Cornell University. Uh, and one of my first teachers at Cornell was the late Alan Bloom, the political a theorist who was himself a student of uh, uh, the political philosopher Leo uh, Strauss. The very first uh, course I took as an undergraduate, as a freshman at Cornell, uh, was a seminar that Bloom taught on Plato's uh, Republic, and that's why I ended up being a classics major, uh, so that I could learn Greek, essentially, and, and be able to read Plato and Aristotle uh, in the original uh, Greek. And I spent most of my undergraduate uh, years uh, reading political philosophy, and one of Bloom's uh, associates had been uh, the Franco-Russian uh, philosopher Alexandre Kojev. Uh, he's very little known in the United States, but is quite uh, prominent in uh, France because in the 1930s and into the early 1940s, up to the German occupation, uh, he uh, taught a very, very famous uh, seminar that virtually every important mid-century French intellectual attended at one time uh, or another. Then this included Jean-Paul Sartre, Raymond Canot, uh, Raymond Aron, uh, that entire generation of French intellectuals. And the notes, he, Kojev didn't really write uh, organized books, but the notes to that uh, series, uh, that seminar, uh, was eventually published uh, under the title L'Introduction à la Lecture de Hegel, Introduction to the Reading uh, of Hegel. And uh, among other things, Kojev had a long conversation, philosophical conversation, uh, with Leo Strauss and so forth. And so as part of my undergraduate education, I, uh, I read this book. And uh, it was really, uh, so the idea of the end of history comes from Hegel. In the Phenomenology of Spirit, uh, he, he talks about um, uh, the culmination uh, of history. But uh, Kojev, in his usual rather... <laughs> dry uh, and understated way, uh, made this remarkable assertion that, uh, yes, the essence of understanding Hegel was that history had ended, and he had a precise year in which it ended. It ended in the year 1806. Uh, it ended uh, with the Battle of Jena, in which uh, uh, Napoleon defeated 
uh, the Prussian army and um, brought uh, Prussia to its knees uh, in the course of the Napoleonic Wars. So uh, we have it on record that actually history did not end in 1989, it ended in 1806. And if you think about that, so uh, Kojev was an extremely brilliant uh, fellow, and if a person like that makes a uh, demonstrably ridiculous statement like history ended in 1806, uh, it behooves lesser lights like us to actually think, well, what did he mean by that? And uh, I think that my interpretation of that is, is roughly uh, that, you know, what happened in 1806, you know, so Hegel was actually a, a, a professor, a young professor of philosophy uh, at the University of Jena at the time, and uh, Napoleon actually came through the town of Jena riding on a horse, and Hegel, you know, literally uh, witnessed Hegel, uh, Napoleon uh, riding through his hometown. And I think what this signified for, uh, for uh, the young Hegel was the fact that the ideas and the ideals underlying the French Revolution, that is to say, the ideas of liberty and equality, uh, had achieved a victory uh, in the world. Uh, and what Kojev said was, yeah, you know, in the 200 years since the Battle of Yen, yeah, a lot of stuff has happened. You know, Bolshevik Revolution, a couple of world wars, the Chinese Revolution, all of that is just backfilling. It, it's just the realization uh, of a set of ideas that had been, for the first time, actually made real somewhere uh, in the world. Uh, and all we had to do now, I mean, the only historical task was not to go beyond it, but actually to, you know, to, to realize it uh, in the here and now. Now, of course, uh, Kojev's own political position was a little bit complicated because it, it was revealed uh, by Dominique Offray and a number of other people after he died that he was actually for a while under the pay of the KGB and had been a communist uh, you know, at, at various, stage, various stages of his career. And in his own writing, uh, there was a certain ambiguity as to whether the end of history was really something like liberal democracy or uh, of the sort uh, practiced by the European Union or whether it was the more socialist uh, version of this. And my uh, choice was to interpret it in the former manner. And in fact, uh, Kojev later in his life became a bureaucrat in the early uh, European economic uh, community, uh, which was a joining of his philosophical ideas with with, with actual practice uh, that uh, you know, he felt that the European Union was the embodiment of, of what would emerge uh, at the end of history. And, and, and I think the single way I would explain my idea is, is as follows, that the notion that history is directional, I think, is accepted by very many people. We may complain about the idea of progress, but we, we believe it. We believe that there's something, something like modernization and development. And the question is, where does the arrow of that historical process lead? For 150 years prior to 1989, most progressive intellectuals around the world believed that it pointed to some form of communism. I mean, that was Marx's idea. Marx was a, you know, he, he borrowed a lot from Hegel. He believed that there was an end of history, but he said that the end of history would be a communist utopia. And what I regarded myself as arguing back in, 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 in that period was, was something much simpler, uh, that uh, history was directional, that there was a modernization process, that it was pointing in a certain direction, but it didn't look like we would ever get to communism, that we would stop at the penultimate station 
on that train, which was a bourgeois liberal democracy and a market uh, economy, and that was the um, uh, that was the appropriate end of history. So, um, the actual article had a slightly different genesis because at the time in the 1980s, I was living uh, as I am now in California, but that time at Southern California in, in at working at the Rand Corporation. Uh, I had written a dissertation on Soviet foreign policy. Uh, these were the heady days of Mikhail Gorbachev. We were all watching in amazement as things happened in the former Soviet Union. Uh, I had actually been working on a project on domestic Soviet politics, and I don't know if it's the same speech that John uh, referred to, but at one moment, you know, I think sometime in, uh, in the year 1988, uh, I was reading a Gorbachev speech, and he had this line in it that said, the essence of socialism is competition. And <laughs> I, <laughs> so I, I called uh, one of my political theory friends, uh, Arthur Melzer, and, you know, I said, Arthur, you know, Gorbachev said that, and that means we're at the end of history. And, of course, you know, since uh, my friend had the same background in, in political theory uh, that I did, you know, I didn't have to explain what that meant. He said, yeah, you're right. This is the end of history. Um, uh, and so um, I guess sometime in the winter of 88, 89, uh, I was visited uh, by uh, a new uh, editor of a new journal called The National Interest that had been founded by uh, Irving Kristol. And uh, that person was, um, was Owen Harris, who I guess uh, uh, John had tried to recruit. Owen uh, is... Um, uh, a little bit in ill health now. He's he's getting a little bit elderly. He went back to Australia a number of years ago. I actually uh, uh, had the uh, the fortune of seeing him when I was in Sydney last uh, uh, last August. But I, I I think with the time difference and everything else, it was too difficult to uh, get him into this uh, seminar. But we I remember very well. We were sitting on the on the nice patio outside of the Beverly uh, Hills Hotel, and he said, "Look, I've got this new journal." on foreign policy called the national interest, uh, do you have anything for me? And I said, well, you know, I've been working on Soviet foreign policy and this and that. And by the way, I got this idea about, you know, writing about the end of history. And he said, well, what's that? And we went into this whole discussion of the intellectual genesis. And he said, okay, write it up. Sounds good. Uh, so uh, I actually wrote the article. I, I believe I wrote most of it actually in Las Vegas. Uh, um, <laughs> Uh, and, and submitted it, and then in the meantime, uh, George H.W. Bush had won the election. There's a new administration. Uh, my uh, longtime friend Dennis Ross became the uh, director of policy planning uh, for James Baker. Uh, he called me and asked me if I would join his staff, so I did as the deputy director for European civil uh, military uh, uh, affairs. Uh, I moved to Washington, but this article was in, you know, in press, and it came out just about this time, uh, 25 years ago, sometime I think in uh, June of 1989, as Tiananmen Square was unfolding, uh, and uh, and the like. And at that point, we're off to the races, and you know, my uh, my life changed um, uh, in a number of ways. The best way it changed was I actually never really had to get a real job after that. Uh, um, uh, and I, I achieved a degree of, you know, intellectual freedom about being able to write whatever I damn pleased, you know, without having to go through tenure and, and you know, things like uh, that, that that a lot of young academics do. 
but uh, oh, I, and there's I guess one other thing to mention in the genesis of this. I did give that article as a lecture at the University of Chicago. I was invited by Bloom and by Nathan Tarkov at the Committee on Social Thought uh, to give a lecture in a series that the, the overall rubric of which was the decline of the West, uh, question mark. Uh, and when um, Nathan Tarkov asked me to speak in that series, I said, well, yeah, I got this lecture on the end of history, but uh, it's kind of the opposite from the decline of the West. It's sort of like the victory of the West. And he said, yeah, we're open-minded. You, know, you, can, <laughs> you can give that talk. So I, uh, I, I gave you know, kind of dry run of it uh, at that point. Uh, and then, you know, I was in the government. Uh, I um, experienced this, you know, amazing series of weeks in which, you know, literally day by day, something, you know, very new and dramatic would happen uh, in, uh, in the former Soviet Union or uh, in Eastern Europe. And I still remember um, how hard it was to adjust to this new uh, reality. I... Uh, recall going to a NATO uh, planners summit. So all the policy planning staffs of the NATO uh, allies met, and, and at, actually that meeting was held in the, in the Riviera in, uh, I think, in late October of 1989. Uh, and then we went on from that meeting to um, Berlin uh, because there had been this big refugee exodus uh, out of East Germany, a uh, crisis that was accelerating. And I remember at the NATO meeting and then subsequently at the embassy in East Germany, the German representative uh, uh, told the group very definitively, you know, Germany will not reunify in my lifetime. And when we went to the embassy in East Berlin, uh, and this was literally the first week of November of 1989, the embassy set us up with a lot of meetings with younger members of the SA Day, the German socialist, uh, uh, you know, the Workers' Party in, in East Germany, because they said, yeah, there's all these civil society people, but that's not the future of, of East Germany. It's these young communists that are going to define uh, the future. So we had these meetings, and then November 11th happens, and the wall comes down. And, uh, uh, and all of us, and, and even after the wall came down, uh, uh, so, you know, the first thought in my mind was, well, okay, so now we have to figure out, you know, what's going to happen now that the Warsaw Pact is, is coming apart. And there's still people in the State Department, you know, when I got back saying, okay, well, now we have to continue these negotiations with the Warsaw Pact. And, you know, somehow you're going to have this <laughs> communist structure despite the fact that the linchpin had just, you know, <laughs> collapsed and, and so forth. So uh, it was a really hard, um, you know, it was really a hard thing to, uh, to get uh, adjusted to. I would say that... Uh, the, you know, so I've spent a lot of the time in kind of answering critics at, at that point, and, and some of the, especially a lot of the ones out of the kind of empiricist Anglo-Saxon world had a lot of trouble <laughs> just with the concept of the end of history because they confused end as termination with end as goal uh, in the sense that, you know, Hegel and Marx had, uh, had intended it. Um, and uh, curiously enough, the, the one audience that never had any kind of misunderstanding about what I was arguing were the Marxists. Uh, and in fact, there was a uh, special meeting, you know, within the Cuban Communist Party after my article came out, uh, kind of an emergency meeting in which they all got together and said, well, what do we make of this? You know, I mean, is this, uh, is this in fact uh, the end of history? And actually, I think in the early days, some of the most intelligent and thoughtful criticisms, you know, of, of what I was saying 
uh, really came out of that camp where, where there are people that understood this concept of a progressive uh, history and modernization, but uh, could actually have a real argument over, um, you know, over where it was going. Um, the other big, I think, uh, aspect of the original, so the, the following year I, um, I left the State Department, then I wrote the article into the book, The End of History and the Last Man. I think reflecting back on that book, um, the one part of it that I feel was underappreciated and underdiscussed was the, uh, the discussion of thumos and rec recognition that constitutes the second half of the book and, and, uh, and, and then culminates in the discussion of the last man, which I think was actually a fairly important uh, part of that whole argument. Uh, and I think it, it continues to be important today. So, and it was extremely important to Hegel because at least in Kojev's reading of Hegel, the whole historical process is not driven by material self-interest as modern economists would, would argue. It's driven by a struggle for, for recognition. So what is recognition? Uh, in Plato's Republic, so going back to that first seminar I took in, uh, in the fall of 1970, in Plato's Republic, uh, uh, Socrates says there are three parts to the soul. There's nomos, there's reason, uh, there's uh, eros, which is desire, which is what economists would call your utility function. Uh, but then there's this thing called thumos, which uh, in English is usually uh, translated as spiritedness. Uh, but it really is the part of the soul that demands recognition. That is to say, it demands uh, one's it, it demands acknowledgement of one's dignity and status on the part of other human beings. So it is a non-material aspect of the human uh, psyche. Uh, and Kojev said, you know, only human beings as opposed to animals are willing to die over a flag or a piece of cloth or, you know, some other really material nothing that signifies recognition because they care about their dignity they care about the intersubjective uh, recognition uh, of their dignity. And the great struggles in human history have really not been over territory, land, uh, resources, and the like. Uh, they've been struggles over uh, dignity. Now, I think in fairness, if you look back at the historical record, uh, there are actually a lot of struggles over territory, women, land, you know, uh, uh, material resources, and the like. But I think that anybody that tries to reduce politics uh, simply to these kinds of materialistic factors misses uh, a huge amount because actually a lot of our politics does revolve around uh, the politics of recognition. And in fact, a lot of what we understand to be economic motivation is actually a struggle over uh, recognition. Adam Smith has a very nice um, account of this in the theory of moral sentiments where he says, the rich man glories in his richness and the poor man uh, is invisible to his fellow human beings. And that is to say, you know, why does Larry Ellison or Bill Gates or any of these really, really rich guys care about, you know, what do they care about in life? Do they care about making another, uh, you know, billion dollars? No, actually what they care about is being recognized for, you know, being better than their fellows or starting a foundation or, or doing something, um, you know, that distinguishes them from uh, your run-of-the-mill uh, multi-billionaire. And um, I think that today in the world... Uh, a tremendous amount of our politics actually revolves around these struggles over recognition. 
So identity politics, you know, what have been the big struggles in American life uh, over the last two generations? The civil rights movement, uh, the, the feminist movement, uh, now the struggle for gay rights and gay marriage, these are all recognition struggles. You know, especially the feminist movement and the gay rights movement were led by middle-class people whose economic uh, um, subordination was really not all that, all that great. And in fact, most of these people economically were, were coming from the upper middle classes uh, or from elites of various sorts. But the issue for them was, you know, it may have been money, but it was money as a signifier of dignity. That's the issue in gay marriage right now. Uh, it's, it's not material benefits being passed on to you, you know, uh, your, your offspring and so forth. It is really about the fact that people want uh, their dignity recognized uh, as the equals of others. And I think in the nationalist struggles going on in Ukraine, Crimea, uh, all of these places, again, there is a material component to this, but a lot of those struggles uh, are struggles over recognition and, um, uh, and dignity. And that continues, I think, to shape uh, a lot of our international uh, politics today. And that, you know, is the aspect of the whole Hegelian account of history that then brings up this question of the last man, because Nietzsche, you know, in a sense, reading Hegel, said, well, yes, if you get to the end of history, uh, what happens? You know, because history is all about uh, struggle. It's all about the desire uh, to be recognized as greater. And if you have a society based on the equality of recognition, where everybody gets that equal recognition, but nobody has anything uh, to aspire to, that you've got a just and equal society, it's materially prosperous, it's stable, uh, there are no big fights, uh, this kind of was like Clinton's America in the 1990s, where we could worry about Monica Lewinsky, you know, as the major uh, issue in human history. Uh, um, you know, that, that's problematic because, in fact, what calls forth the greatest virtues and, in a sense, the greatest, greatest flourishing of human character is precisely the fact that there's injustice in the world, precisely the fact that there are great wars to be fought or great struggles to be uh, undertaken. And if you live in a world at the end of history, uh, you're going to have the last man. You're going to have a man without a chest, uh, meaning you know somebody with no self-assertiveness who does not struggle, does not uh, demand recognition, uh, and the like. And uh, I would say, you know, if you look around the world uh, these days, um, a lot of uh, you know, there's there's you know, it, it continues to be an issue because I think people want something more than peace and prosperity. You know, this is why they want to climb Mount Everest, or this is why, you know, uh, my former students wanted to go, uh, you know, work uh, to fight poverty in the developing world. Uh, you know, they still want worlds to conquer. They still want injustice uh, to correct. And so there's, in a certain sense, a hidden inherent contradiction uh, in the end of history world, that if we actually all arrive at peaceful liberal democracy with widespread shared mutual prosperity, uh, you know, our lives are somehow going to be uh, diminished as a result of having uh, successfully uh, arrived there. Uh, so, you know, that uh, I think continues to be uh, an issue that, um, you know, as I said at the end of the book version of the end of history, uh, is in fact one of the unresolved uh, issues in a uh, is in a modern liberal democracy. All right, so let me now turn to uh, fast forward to 25 years um, uh, later. 
uh, and uh, how do I regard the world now? So, <laughs> so don't tell me that the world is really different in 2014 than it was in 1989. I know that. Uh, so, you know, we got some real problems right now because uh, I think uh, just this year uh, you've had both uh, Russia and China. So first of all, Russia never uh, developed as in, in the way that, uh, you know, we hoped. In fact, I remember Mike Mandelbaum uh, right after the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, saying that, um, you know, Russians actually seem to be much more European than we had given them credit for. And that, you know, seemed to be plausible uh, back then. But unfortunately, now, if you look at the popular reaction in Russia to the annexation of Crimea, uh, you know, they're actually quite different in a lot of their, you know, their preferences and, uh, you know, understanding of, of authority and, and uh, uh, things of that sort. Uh, China, for its part, uh, is, did not uh, reform. Uh, Tiananmen was, as we all know, put down in, in a great deal of blood. They went on to be, unlike Russia, uh, enormously successful in developing a modern uh, high-tech economy, and they're on the move. Uh, so they're now slicing up Asia in little salami slices, uh, um, uh, uh, hoping to stay under uh, the radar. But they uh, also, I think, like the Russians, have uh, certain, and, and actually in, in, in the Chinese case, I really do think it's a, it's a struggle for recognition. I, you know, they don't care about these stupid coral reefs and, and so forth in, in the South China and East China Seas. I mean, I think what they want is they want to be recognized as the number one power in that part of the world, uh, which was their historic role uh, in, un, in dynastic China. And after having gone through 100 years of humiliation and whatnot, they're back. And they're saying, you know, we're back. And, and Japan, the United States uh, are not recognizing that fact. And I think that's really what you know, the agenda that's, that's unfolding. So we've got a big geopolitical problem. I agree with Walter Mead, uh, our colleague at the American Interest, who wrote in Foreign Affairs recently that geopolitics uh, is back. Um, but, uh, and, 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 and I would say further that if you look at the performance of a, a lot of democracies around the world, there's also, uh, you know, a lot uh, 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 that we could wish for. Uh, so some of it is just democratic backsliding. Uh, Thailand looked like a big success in the 1990s after, after it uh, democratized and survived the uh, East Asian crisis, but increasingly the society has gotten polarized between yellow shirts and red shirts, and finally the military stepped in and took over. Bangladesh, you know, it holds democratic uh, elections, but it's in the thrall of these two enormous clientelistic uh, highly corrupt uh, uh, political uh, dynasties. Turkey uh, has been backsliding uh, into authoritarian practices under uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, Erdogan. Nicaragua, you know, Venezuela, I mean, there are a number of countries in Latin America that uh, are clearly either highly corrupt uh, or uh, uh, authoritarian or pay lip service to democracy but uh, do not implement the, um, uh, the essence of it. So all of that said, uh, I think that we nonetheless need to have a little bit of perspective in terms of um, where we are in history. So if you'll permit me, I've got just a couple of uh, uh, I've got a couple of slides that illustrate, I think, where we are. So these uh, come from my colleague at Stanford, Larry Diamond, who I think is probably, 
you know, the world's foremost expert in tracking things like the state of democracy uh, around the world. But if you, you know, you look at some of these charts, so these are largely numbers taken from uh, Freedom House that every year comes up with indices of civil and political uh, rights. It's actually remarkable what's happened uh, in what Samuel Huntington called the third wave of democratization, beginning with the Spanish and Portuguese transitions and Greece and Turkey in the 1990s, accelerating through the transitions in Latin America uh, during the 19, uh, late 70s and, and, and 80s. And then, you know, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall was actually only the culmination of this big wave. It wasn't even a culmination. It, it was kind of midway through the wave, which was then followed by another wave of transitions in sub-Saharan Africa, in East Asia, and so forth. And so we've gone from a situation in which about 35 countries, or roughly 30% of the world's uh, nations, were de electoral democracies. And let's just forget about the quality of democracy, just an electoral, you know, they hold elections. Uh, only 35 in the year 1970, and by the year 2013, the number was about 120 or about 60% of all the uh, countries uh, in the world. Uh, you can see there is a, this breaks things down by region. So Central Europe, Latin America, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and so forth. So the different parts of the world uh, went through these, these transitions at different points. The most dramatic one, of course, being in, 19, uh, in the late 1980s in, uh, in Eastern Europe with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, a, it's an impressive phenomenon because it's really occurred uh, all over the world. Um, again, um, this breaks things down by, uh, by region and, uh, you know, by the uh, quality of democracy. So you're a democracy if you just hold elections, uh, but you're a liberal democracy if you also respect um, uh, uh, civil and political uh, individual rights. And again... Uh, uh, you get different performance in different parts of the world. Uh, but Diamond notes that there has been a, uh, what he calls a democratic uh, recession. I really am cribbing because these are literally his uh, PowerPoint slides, so I want to acknowledge that. Uh, but that expansion, expansion peaked in 2005. Uh, it declined to 116. We're back up to about 120 uh, in 2013. But you've had eight consecutive years of decline in the Freedom House both the political and, and civil uh, scores uh, over, over the last uh, decade. Uh, and so the ratio of gains to losses, you know, there's been progress in places like Burma, uh, Kenya, but there's been backsliding in other places. Uh, but the ratio of gains to losses, uh, it, it's been worsening uh, as, as time has gone on. And so uh, there have been more setbacks and, and fewer uh, advances, all right? so. I would say, uh, yes, there's reason to be pessimistic on the whole uh, about recent events, but I don't think that you can take the performance of global democracy in any one decade and use that necessarily as your benchmark. I think you've got to look at, at much longer periods of time. And over that long period of time, like the stock market, you know, things go up and down. We're in a, in a down phase right now, but uh, that does not mean that uh, there hasn't been this e enormous uh, profusion of democracies around the world. I think in the realm of ideas, uh, there isn't really much to um, uh, argue about. Uh, I think that the alternative models out there, you know, who wants to be Iran or Saudi Arabia? You know, nobody, <laughs> including uh, in the Middle East, uh, where I think, you know, there's, there's a ton of, I mean, apart from the 
Arab Spring and everything else, the, there's a ton of poll data that, that suggests that, you know, Islamism may, they, they may be the best organized parties uh, out there, but they do not necessarily represent, you know, the, the majority wishes in uh, very many um, uh, Middle Eastern countries, or to the extent that they do, you know, it's not clear that it's uh, incompatible uh, with something that we would understand as liberal uh, democracy. Uh, I think that, um, uh, so, uh, so the empirical situation is not great. However, uh, I do believe, and this is more of a theme that I have talked about in my last book, The Origins of Political Order, and the one that will appear uh, in October, The um, Political uh, Order and Political Decay, that the actual performance of democracies uh, has been uh, quite disappointing uh, for a number of reasons. And if I could point to a single reason why I think uh, there's been disappointment, uh, it really has to do with a failure of governance. That is to say, the failure of democratic states to actually deliver on the substance of what people expect out of a, a democratic politics. That is to say, citizen and individual security, uh, shared economic growth, uh, basic public services, you know, decent schools for their children, uh, public health, uh, these sorts of things that make individual opportunity, uh, therefore, uh, possible. And I think there are many examples of those uh, failures around the world. Uh, Ukraine, uh, I think, um, uh, is a perfect example of that. Everybody in 2004, after the Orange Revolution, breathed a sigh of relief uh, that the good guys had won, and then they relaxed. And they said, okay, we've got a democracy, and it turned out that the Orange Coalition was totally incapable of actually running that country. They squabbled internally between Viktor Yushchenko and uh, uh, Yulia uh, Timoshenko. They, they didn't deal with corruption. They didn't improve uh, the delivery of services. And as a result, uh, Viktor Yanukovych came back into power in uh, 2010. If you compare India and China, uh, it's very impressive that India has held up as, a, uh, as an electoral democracy since, uh, since becoming an independent republic. Uh, but uh, the quality of uh, Indian public services, infrastructure, public policy is appalling uh, in terms of ability to provide clean water, infrastructure, you know, basic things that uh, China as an authoritarian state does. And by the way, I don't believe it's because China is authoritarian. It's because they have administrative uh, capacity. Uh, any state can either have it or lack it, and just because you're authoritarian doesn't mean you've got it. Uh, so Zimbabwe is not China. North Korea is not uh, China. Conversely, uh, you know, uh, Sierra Leone or El Salvador are democracies, but they're a lot different from Norway and Denmark, again, because of the, you know, their relative inability to provide those basic public goods uh, and the like. And we finally get, I mean, I don't want to focus in, in, in this venue and, and in this forum uh, terribly much on what I'm going to say in my next book about the United States, but I think we've got a, you know, a problem in governance in, uh, in this country where, uh, you know, the basic functions of government, like passing a budget that is fiscally responsible and sustainable over the long run, seems to be beyond the power of Congress to come up with and beyond the bureaucracy to actually uh, to actually implement. And so I think as well as uh, political development and uh, democratic transition, uh, you also have uh, democratic decay or the decay of uh, institutions. So uh, there's both an up escalator 
that takes you towards the end of history, and there's a down escalator that takes you away from it. So with that, I guess I get one more crack at um, uh, talking to you at the end of the session, but thank you very much for your uh, attention, and I look forward to the comments. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much, uh, uh, Frank. Uh, now, we have two uh, commentators, maybe about 15 minutes each, uh, Adam Garfinkel uh, and then Michael Mandelbaum. Fifteen minutes, huh? <laughs> well, uh, Frank and I have known each other for at least, I think, 20 years or something like that. And uh, so most of you probably know he's the, uh, the editorial board chairman uh, of the American Interest. I've had the privilege of working pretty closely with Frank over the last eight or nine years for that. And uh, there's nobody, um, no social scientist, no thinker that I esteem more than I do Frank Fukuyama. And these two books that... Um, you mentioned the, the origins of political order and then political order and political decay, which is out in October, I think. Um, to me, anyway, these are, these are the two most brilliant um, sort of synoptic books on, on political sociology that I've ever read. And so if you haven't read the first volume, I recommend it. And if you uh, have read the first volume, of course, you'll want to read the second one in October. Um, although I've known Frank for all these decades and although we've been together many times, I don't think I've ever followed him on a podium before. I don't like it. <laughs> um, but I'll do the best I can. Um, first thing I want to mention is that the article, the original article back in, in 1989, was one of those articles that, that magazine editors absolutely love. Because it, sort of like the Mr. X article of George Kennan and a few others, one, and one by Albert Wallstetter back in the 50s, there are, there are a small number of essays that manage to sort of pluck out of the air sentiments that are sort of floating about and present them in a compelling unitary framework so that people can see what all of these fragments actually add up to. And the end of history essay was such an essay. And say so editors love these things because whether you agree with it or not or agree with it in part, it galvanizes an important conversation. And uh, when I was editor of the National Interest, and, and now that I'm editor of the American Interest, I published a lot of things that I don't agree with because, they, because things, there are things you publish that, again, galvanize important conversations. They create useful collisions. It doesn't make any difference if the author is 100% is right or 80%, whatever it is. What an editor ought to be doing is, is throwing different ideas together and getting some sparks to come out of them. And the end of history essay certainly, certainly did that. Um, I want to remind everybody that the original essay in the National Interest had a question mark afterward. It was the end of history, right? Uh, despite the fact that it had a question mark after it, and despite the fact that it was fairly carefully written, and as I recall Owen Harris telling me, fairly carefully edited it, it, it certainly has to, have, it has to be uh, the most misunderstood, vulgarized essay uh, ever read, not written, but ever read, you still today find people who have never heard of Hegel, and they really don't get the idea of history with an H, and who can blame them, all right? Leo Strauss, Bloom, German idealism, always looking for it. I mean, it's not, it's not something you would expect a normal person to be able to just sort of roll right into and understand it. But really, I think 
probably the, the vast majority of people who ever laid eyes on this thing had no idea what you were, you were getting at. And that must be very, very frustrating over the years. Uh, the piece that will come out tomorrow in the, in the Wall Street Journal is not the first second thoughts that, uh, that Frank has devoted to the end of history concept. I think it was 10 years after the original, when I was, when I was editor of the American Interest, uh, the National Interest, we did a second thoughts, um, uh, scenario, second thoughts kind of a convocation, didn't we? Uh, so this, this idea has, uh, has been rolling along at a pretty good clip, you know, 10 years after the fact, and now 25 years after the fact. And I expect there'll be a, confer- a conference like this 50 years after the fact. I don't know that we'll be here, but I'm sure that there will be a 50th anniversary of the, the end of history essay. Uh, when you write an essay, and again, as an editor, I know this, when you write an essay that, that packs a lot of uh, complex ideas in it, uh, and that is not obviously intelligible to uh, readers of a certain educational level, you need sometimes to, 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 to use Dean Acheson's old phrase, uh, to make an argument clearer than the truth, is the way that Acheson put it. And uh, I think there, there, are, there are passages in the original article, less so in the book, that, that in a way are clearer than the truth. And I think it was some of those passages, um, clearer than the truth passages, that evoked the ire of commentators. Was it one issue or two issues later? I don't recall. Uh, uh, already Mention has already been made of Sam Huntington uh, uh, talking about the errors of endism. I think I recall Pierre Hosner getting rather frothy about the neck, disagreeing with one thing or another. Uh, so this it, it generated a terrific conversation. Um, at the time, uh, in 1989, I was not at the National Interest yet, uh, but I read the article like just about everybody else read the article. And uh, I, I had some problems with it, to be perfectly honest. Now, over the years, with Frank's th- second thoughts, and then the Wall Street Journal article tomorrow, which I guess could be construed as third or fourth or fifth thoughts, most of my, most of my concerns uh, uh, have, been, have been washed away, uh, but not all of them. So. Just, just, to, just to be the wet mop in the room about the idea of the end of history, question mark, let me just um, uh, take myself back to 1989-1990 and uh, tell you what made me uncomfortable with the argument in brief. Uh, and again, this is not a, a matter of um, uh, really right or wrong. It's more a matter, I've come to conclude that this is more about temperament. When you start talking about philosophical ideas and then bringing the philosophical ideas down to tie them into the world, into the real world, a lot of this turns not on, on social science evidence uh, uh, strictly construed. It turns on intuition and temperament, the kind of person that you are, that your parents made you and your peers made you. So it really, it's not so much that we disagree uh, you know, as, as social scientists. These are matters of temperament. So the first thing that, that, that struck me when I read this um, and that has struck me since what Frank talked about before, the idea that there is a, a direction to modernization, that there is a kind of an accumulated experience that is leading somewhere. Uh, and to me, this, this struck me as a kind of Whiggish teleology. And whenever I, whenever I, I hear people uh, talk or when I read people write like that, like there's some, there's some destiny uh, that history is inevitably, history with a capital H, is inevitably leading, leading to, I, I, I just cringe from that. Uh, and the reason is that part, part, part of the reason is that, you know, I think we're all, we're all social science PhDs up here. There's no social science evidence for that proposition. You can construe some, but ultimately it seems to me it's a creedal matter. It's a matter of faith. 
And when one starts leaving social science, or what is social science a bowl, if you'll excuse the expression, for creedal issues and matters of faith, I, I don't mind doing that. Uh, I have a lot of faith myself in, in other, in other uh, uh, systems of belief, but, but you have to recognize that you're in a different place when you do that. And so there was this subtle movement from what seemed to be uh, an historical narrative or something that could be uh, approached through social science into this, this teleolo Whiggish teleology, which struck, which struck me as something different. Moreover, the, the tradition out of which this progressive modernization, uh, political and economic modernization came out of, was not entirely, but by and large, a materialist um, narrative. Now, Frank just very elegantly said toward the end of his talk that it's not by material um, factors alone that history is made and that human beings are motivated. Uh, and that's through most digging, that's perfectly correct. But the tradition out of which this idea comes, uh, of course, Marx being the best example, I guess, uh, was largely a materialist uh, narrative. And, and that also made me slightly uncomfortable back, back in the day. The second um, thing that made me uncomfortable about it at the time was, was the endism in it. And in the, in the journal article you'll see tomorrow, the word terminate is, is, is used. In other words, there's, there's this progression of experience and substructure and superstructure and, and the famous dialectical relate, and, and it ends somewhere. It terminates in, not communism, but in capitalist liberal democracy. The, the terminate stuff bothered me then, and it still bothers me now. Because Hegel notwithstanding, things don't end. And I certainly agree that you've got to step back more than a decade, or two decades, or three decades, or a century or, or so, to see the fluctuations, the oscillations in historical patterns. And you know, uh, Frank may be an optimist about the ultimate direction of, of, uh, of liberal economics and, 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 and political institutions. Uh, I'm hopeful, but I'm skeptical. I'm just not so sure. Uh, John Gray wrote a book recently. I, I forget the name of it, but I'm more, I'm more, I guess I'm more attracted to the pessimistic uh, view of, uh, of these historical, these grand historical stretches. Uh, you know, what goes up does come down. Um, and the idea of political decay solves a lot of my problems with endism. In the article you'll see tomorrow, Frank talks about there's technological change, for example. It changes the social relations um, uh, in a country and among, among societies so that things are never stagnant. And I really don't worry too much, by the way, about the last man. I don't think we'll ever in this world get to a point where everybody is, uh, is materially uh, affluent and everybody is at peace and, everybody, and everything's just hunky-dunk. I don't think we'll ever get there. I think there will always be challenges, so I don't lose sleep about the, about the last man. Um, so the, 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 uh, the, the, the terminate word uh, bothered me. Uh, and finally, the, what bothered me was the idea that there are no alternatives to uh, the, the model or the paradigm of, of liberal democracy. It seemed to me uh, at the time, and it, it's, actually it still seems to me now, that when you look at the Cold War and the ideological dimension especially of the Cold War, uh, what you really had was one facet of the Enlightenment, uh, whether it was the Scottish Enlightenment, you, you know, Gertrude Himmelfarb notwithstanding, pick, pick, your, pick your Enlightenment, uh, a, a contest at, at, at a level of uh, ideological, high ideological refraction between uh, the denizens of the Scottish Enlightenment and those of the bastard child of the Enlightenment, namely Marxism-Leninism. But this fight in formal ideological terms uh, largely in German, but not just in German, in Western languages, uh, this was, this was, a, this was a, Western, a Western argument, a Western philosophical debate. And it pretty much ignored the rest of the planet. 
And it's always seemed to me that uh, there is an alternative uh, to Western capitalist uh, liberal democracy, but it is not an alternative that is commonly articulated in ways that we understand it, in ways that we are um, uh, trained to hear it. And what I mean by that is essentially the, what Frank uh, calls in, his, in the first volume of the, the um, Origins of Political Order, the primordial societies, the, the societies that have not yet uh, or have not created the Viberian state. Uh, and even where there is a state, the societies really live ben beneath it in networks of various shapes and sizes. Uh, there are people who still, who still, many, I haven't done the math, a lot of people on this planet who still are organized according to tribe and according to clan and according to um, uh, ethno-linguistic definition. And uh, there are many places in the world where there's never been a state, as in the Viberian sense, so that you can't decay down to it because it never really existed in the first place. And I think there is this sense of, uh, you might say, to use Tawny's phrase, who never made it from Gemeinschaft to Gesellschaft, I think that is an alternative to the liberal capitalist order. It's a collectivist alternative that doesn't have a formal voice in terms of the ideological thinking that we are accustomed to hear. Uh, and then finally, and I think, I think Frank would agree, and I think his, his discussion of uh, difficulties of governance uh, speaks to this, <clears throat> the whole premise of the end of history uh, it seems to me there's, a, there's, a, there's an unstated premise, and that is that the Westphalian territorial state is essentially the unit of account. It's the unit of measure. I suppose you could say, well, there could be uh, uh, capitalist economics on, on some other political platform other than the, the state, the territorial state, and there could be there are lots of forms of accountability that are not formally democratic by our sense of rule of law. But nevertheless, I think at the time that it was written, certainly, and I think mostly since, there's a, there's, a, there's a tacit predicate below, uh, below the line of sight that this is all basically on the platform of a, of a, a global system of states. But what if, what, if there's something, um, what if there's something problematic about the modern territorial state? What if the state itself is uh, being attacked or is being eroded uh, from various uh, social and political forces? I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss the opportunity to show you the new issue of the American interest, which if, I know you can't see back there in the back, but basically it's the, it's the, famous, it's the famous drawing of uh, the Leviathan on the cover of, uh, of Hobbes' book, right? And uh, it reads, Leviathan mugged. Uh, and essentially it's a, it's a series of articles uh, showing stresses uh, on the state as a, as a series of uh, coherent institutions. And, and the governance problems that Frank mentioned are not special to democracies. There are autocracies that also have very similar, sometimes worse, governance problems. So it seems to me that one thing we ought to be careful about is, is, is making explicit the premise of the original article, which is that if the state system itself is uh, coming undone, if the state as an institution is under siege, then a lot of what follows when we talk about the end of history has to be reevaluated in terms of a new, a new sort of basic circumstance. I'll stop there. Frank was right. 
<laughs> History ended in 1989, and the last 25 years bear him out. The history that ended was not history defined as events or history defined as conflict, which, of course, continue apace. In this connection, I'm reminded of a discussion I had toward the end of the Cold War with a number of colleagues who had spent their professional careers, as I had, working on Cold War issues, worriedly wondering whether the world would still have a use for our services. One of them, Josh Epstein, said, what we really need now is a series of conference-building measures. <laughs> well, fortunately, but not surprisingly, in the last 25 years, the world supplies them. What ended in 1989 was history as Hegel understood it, or as Kuzhev interpreted Hegel as understanding it, and certainly as Frank interpreted Kuzhev as interpreting Hegel as understanding it. What ended was history as the clash of ideologies. History defined that way began, Hegel to the contrary notwithstanding, with the French Revolution, which marked the appearance of liberal ideas, not just as the abstract thoughts of obscure writers, but rather as actors on the world stage. The 19th century saw a contest between liberalism and traditionalism, strong elements of which, as Adam noted, still persist. The traditional world I define here as socially hierarchical with an emphasis on kinship, economically stagnant, psychologically religious, and politically dynastic. The contest between liberalism and tradition was finally decided in favor of liberalism at the end of World War I. And it was followed by another 20th century contest, one that lasted for seven decades, from 1918 to 1989, that pitted liberalism against two illiberal forms of modernity, fascism and communism. The outcomes of World War II and the Cold War handed final victory to liberalism. That was the significance of 1989. Now, liberalism has many problems, as my two colleagues have noted, but it does not face an ideological challenge as it did in the previous two centuries. The only current candidate for a full-fledged ideological challenger is radical Islam. This does qualify as an ideology. It has a program. It proposes to implement the Sharia, Islamic religious law, as it was practiced, or so it is imagined by radical Islamists, in the seventh century. But it really is not a serious challenge. First, it's relevant only to Muslims. Second, it apparently appeals only to a minority of Muslims, and probably a tiny minority. Third, radical Islam has not been a success where the attempt has been made to practice it on a large scale. Who wants to live under the Iranian political system? Apparently not the vast majority of Iranians. 
The Saudi Arabian system is no more attractive, although doubtless many countries would like to have the oil revenue that the Saudi ruling family enjoys. And as for the Islamic Emirate of Gaza, well, no more need be said. Now, the current international order is not unchallenged. And the main challenge comes from two large, powerful countries, Russia and China. Both of them seek more power, more influence, more wealth, and perhaps even more territory. But these challenges do not, I believe, amount to the resumption of history as Hegel defined it, history with a capital H. And this is so, I think, for three reasons. First, neither Russia nor China makes an ideological claim for its ambitions. Neither is openly seeking to spread its own form of government. Both, in fact, claim rather the opposite. Each claims that it is unique, that its political system is peculiar to itself, and that claim is used as a way of warding off demands for political liberalism, with which both governments feel besieged. Second, the Russian and Chinese challenges to the current international order do not amount to a full-fledged ideological challenge, because insofar as the ambitions of these two large countries have an ideological content, they are manifestations of nationalism. Nationalism is one of the ideas that the French Revolution brought to the world. It's entirely compatible with liberalism. Indeed, Mill thought the two more or less went together, although nationalism is, of course, now deployed for different purposes by the existing Russian and Chinese governments. Third, Russia and China do not present full-fledged ideological challenges in the 21st century because the two of them are already more or less liberal in economic terms. And it can be argued, and I have argued, that each is likely to become more liberal in political terms over time. Well, if Hegelian history, history with a capital H, has ended, what is now driving events? What is small h history about? I believe that the world has shifted, to use the, term, the terms Frank employs in his 1989 essay, from the dominance of consciousness to the dominance of materialism. It is, I believe, not ideas, but material interests that now largely, although certainly not exclusively, drive events and dominate the world. We live in the era of the supremacy of economics. Specifically, all countries now belong to the global economy, and the global economy generates the major political conflicts of our time, the ones that dominate national and international life. These political conflicts generated by the global economy are the subject of my recent book, the road to global prosperity. In writing it, I did not think of it as the sequel to the end of history, but in a sense, it can be seen that way. The global economy produces political conflict in three distinct ways. First, within countries, cross-border trade, finance, and immigration generate political conflicts between the winners and losers from these international flows. 
The results of the recent elections to the European Parliament testify to this. Second, the global economy generates political conflicts through its chronic susceptibility to instability in financial terms. Free market financial systems are prone to instability, and this is the subject of conflict. The instability stems from the propensity of free market financial systems for crises through the inflation and then the bursting of bubbles, an example of which we all experienced on September 15, 2008. Third, conflict arises from the global economy through the difficulties of what is sometimes called development, by which is meant economic growth. This means that the world is far from conflict-free, but all of this takes place within the same broadly legitimate framework. The disputes that we experience around the world today are numerous, but they're also, in the main, technical, parochial, and generally peaceful. So where does that leave us? Well, uh, at the end of the end of history, Frank foresaw a world, a post-ideological world, that would be, among other things, boring. Is it boring, as he foresaw? Well, that, of course, depends upon your idea of boredom. And boredom varies according to taste. I'm informed, for example, that there are some people who actually find baseball boring, hard as that is to believe. But whether or not the world is boring, it is less war-prone. Compared with the world between 1789 and 1989, our world is politically calm, intellectually rather unexciting, and destined to remain that way for the foreseeable future. And that, by way of a concluding observation, is probably the way most people saw the world in which they were living in 1788. Thank you. <laughs> OK, we have a time for at least a few questions, and then we'll take a break, uh, have the second session. I did, forgot to mention, but I assume you know that at 4.30, there'll be a, a, a very nice reception out there with real food and real drink. Uh, which you can look forward to. So do we have a couple of questions um, here and there? Yes, sir, in the middle. Uh, I'm Hank Gaffney, used to be in uh, OSD and uh, CNA, and a uh, longtime student of Russia since I took Feinsod's course in 1954, and uh, 15 trips to uh, Russia, endless conversations with the Russians. Um, I would not put Russia in the same framework as China right now. It is far weaker than um, it looks. This is, this is not Russia, this is Putin. Uh, and it may be a temporary phenomenon, although all leaders like that think they're going to be in office forever. Um, and there is a much larger European streak within Russians, as I've known them, but they have felt very stiffed by the EU, the most formidable non-working bureaucracy in the world, on one hand, and worrying about China on the other hand. So he's concentrating on his own thing, 
but there isn't much there to concentrate on. Well, I, um, I, I, uh, I agree in general with what you said, Hank. Uh, the current Russian regime, and I agree, what we're seeing in Crimea is mostly Putin, Putin's and Putinism. And the current regime is the product of three things. Uh, it is first the product of Russian political history and political culture, which is not firmly liberal, but which does have liberal, that is, European elements in it. Just how European Russian has ever been was the subject of the great debate between the two great American historians of Russia of the last generation, Richard Pipes and Martin Malia. Uh, and I agree with Malia. I think that there is a substantial European component, but it is certainly not a full-fledged Western country. There's always a, a struggle about the, the direction of Russia. So that's one element. The second element on which this regime rests, which is extremely important, is oil and gas. This is a petro-state. The, the three-quarters of the uh, hard currency earnings that Russia has come from the sale of energy. Uh, Putin became popular because he happened to be president at a time when the globally traded price of oil rose from about 23 to $120 a barrel. He was the guy playing the base tuba the, the day it rained silver dollars. Um, and, uh, but for the energy revenues, the Russian regime would look very different. It would behave differently toward its neighbors. Uh, I doubt that Putin would, would now be in office. The third uh, element of uh, the Russian regime and I, you very properly call attention to it, Hank, is resentment of the West. Uh, this is not the strongest element. It's the weakest of the three. It's not determinant, uh, but it does exist. We do bear some responsibility for it, uh, especially by virtue of our uh, ill-advised and counterproductive decision to expand NATO uh, in the 1990s. And it is worth noting that when Putin has talked to Russians, about what he was doing in Ukraine. Uh, this is distinct from the propaganda that the media pumped out. He didn't talk about their fellow countrymen in danger and the obligations that they had to their fellow Slavs and their fellow Russians. He talked about how they had been pushed around too long by the West and it was all the fault of the West and the West is arrogant. So uh, I believe that this regime will not last forever. I believe it is within the power of the West to undercut this regime if we would undertake, that is, we and the Europeans would undertake energy policies that the Europeans show no sign of being willing to undertake. And therefore, it seems to me that the major issue, if and when Putin goes, is the one to which Frank made reference, and that is, what kind of regime is Russia's political culture able to support? Well, yeah, I would just <clears throat> say that one of the reasons that Russia, I, I agree with you that they, it's not in the same category as China because uh, it's a very unbalanced uh, type of development that is so heavily dependent on energy uh, that I think it's not a generalizable model. And it does prove that, you know, one of the major supports for authoritarian government is, in fact, resource wealth. Uh, that, you know, to the extent that there are a lot of holdouts, uh, it, you know, it's because... Uh, governments don't need to tax their own populations to get uh, revenues and therefore can't be held uh, accountable by the, the people that pay taxes. 
If I could add one point on that, uh, it basically fits also with Frank's talk about recognition. I was very impressed in the 1990s when NATO was being expanded, uh, something I generally would be in favor of. In fact, I wrote an article once about getting the Soviet Union under Gorbachev into NATO. Uh, but what was happening was there's this pushback, not from Putin types, but from liberal Western East uh, European oriented uh, people in Russia really finding it offensive. And it seemed to me that was something that really ought to have been taken much more into account overall and wasn't. Just just one one short comment. You know, I, I certainly agree that Russia is weak in many ways. Uh, it seems to have led the president to refer to Russia as a regional power. And when I heard that, I thought, okay, it's a regional power. It's weak in many ways. But then there are these several thousand nuclear weapons uh, and uh, means to deliver those weapons. And that is the difference between, in my opinion, something other than a regional power and what Russia is, however weak, today. Let's read down here in the front. Thank you. Um, Mark Naterno. Uh, I'm fellow at the Interactivity Foundation, and um, was worked very closely with Karl Popper towards the end of his life, was his editor. You've you a little bit louder, please. And recently uh, wrote a book which should appear in a few months on Hayek and Popper and their differences about rationality, economism, and, and democracy. And I, I, I'm, I think that you have your finger on something very important when you talk about the desire for recognition, and yet at the same time, I wonder about... Um, the end of ideology, uh, especially when we're living in a country ourselves, which seems to be, uh, whether you call it, when I say something is ideology, I just mean it's a philosophy I don't like, but philosophically very much divided to the extent to which it's difficult to uh, different sides to have even uh, respectful and tolerant uh, political discussion. Now, I, I remember during the um, 90s, I was trotting around Eastern Central Europe, um, preaching uh, the wonders of democracy and, and open society. And, um, and I remember that I was very much taken by how much the attraction to democracy and open society for many people was predicated upon the promise of economic prosperity. And I think it's fair to say that those promises in many instances have, have not been uh, fulfilled, and I wonder whether or not. Uh, and I always have thought that you know the predictions are that China will at some point overtake us economically. Some people say it already has. Um, I'm not sure about that, but the um, it seemed to me that once that happened, there would be very serious questions um, about perhaps the preferability of autocratic states coupled with some type of um, liberal economy um, and that perhaps people would begin to ask very um, difficult questions uh, about democracy and uh, just in terms of simple cost-benefit analysis, how much we spend on democracy and what benefits um, we get to it. And in, in, in writing my book, uh, the last book on the last chapter on democracy, it, it struck me that even though we oftentimes talk about failed states, um, perhaps we should be talking more about failed societies. And what I mean is societies in which people do not tolerate each other, cannot respect their views. Um, I, I think ours 
to a large extent, um, qualifies in, 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 in that realm right now. So I I'm just want to throw those comments on the table. I do think that this idea about recognition yeah. for dignity is very important, but I also think that a lot of people value economic prosperity. Okay. Sounds like you. Uh, yeah, well, Adam <laughs> just wrote the word trust uh, on his sheet of paper, and I think that's right, that uh, successful societies need a level of trust and you know, a certain degree of consensus. Uh, and I think it is very troubling in our society right now. You know, the fundamental value differences, although people in the, you know, on the talk shows like to stress that, they're not really that significant. Uh, and yet you get this poisonous atmosphere where people really cannot, uh, you know, stand to be in the same room with one another. I actually, in the original article, had a reference to the Byzantine Empire and the Greens and the Blues, which were two racing teams in the Hippodrome that uh, corresponded to monothelite and monophusite interpretations of Christianity. And in that system, people killed each other over this, you know, which color racing team uh, they supported uh, because of this fundamental breakdown of trust. And uh, I don't know quite what the solution to that is in an American context, but, uh, you know, I think you're right that democracy is not just a visible set of institutions. It's also a lot of intangible, uh, you know, norms about civility, about, you know, uh, uh, deliberation, you know, and a lot of other things. Adam, you join us? Okay. Okay, why don't we stop there, uh, take a 15-minute break, uh, back here about 2.40. Um, we'll have three more presentations, each quite brief, about 15 minutes, uh, and then we can really open it up. Uh, Frank will be back to comment on the commentators, and uh, then we'll end it out uh, at uh, time for the reception afterwards. So thanks for your attention. I'll see you back in 15 minutes. Thank you.